I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community pulling up the drawbridge against myth, structurally slighting it, and making sure that all falsehood is fatally undermined. The podcast that provides the satisfying battering ram that all historians wish they could use. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, Man in the Battlements, with fellow historian Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week we're here to rip apart a myth that is a favourite of ill-informed tour guides everywhere, and it's about time it stopped. So to put this to rest once and for all, we are joined today by buildings archaeologist and a man with an envious PhD in castles from Triskelly Heritage, Dr. James Wright. James, welcome to History Rage. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I've been really looking forward to this ever since you contacted me a few months ago. I've been really building my apoplectic rage (laughs) up, especially for this podcast. I've been just generally filling up with anger and fury. Well, do bear in mind, we don't have medical cover on here, right? So <laughs> do not have a heart attack with the rage. Um, but as you say, you you came to us after I witnessed your rage about today's particular myth on Twitter. Um, and I believe it was after uh, Kyle had uh, commented to uh, a certain castle, which you may name, but uh, I'm not going to. Sorry. Uh, and after, after that, I just thought, I've got to get you on. And here you are. So for our listeners out there, though, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your background and the work that you do? So I'm a buildings archaeologist, as you very kindly introduced me, which essentially means that I unpick the physical structures of buildings to try and understand what their original function was, how they originally appeared, what fabric they were originally built from and I try and unpick that and to try and make sense of it and then follow the structure of the building through time to understand how buildings are changed by humans for very human needs uh, and to try and explain what we have left and why we have the buildings in the way that we do and I use lots of archaeological techniques for that 
I've been doing it for over 20 years now. Uh, yeah. I've worked for lots of different organizations, but for the last five or six years, I've been running my own company and we work for historic buildings owners all over the country. Yeah. So if somebody's got to consult on how, on something that's grade one listed, for example, would that be your area of expertise? It's listed buildings. It's unlisted buildings. It's literally anybody that either wants to find out more about a historic building or needs to find out more about historic building and when i say needs that can be for purely research purposes or it yep. can be linked to planning or conservation or something like that we're dealing with clients who are everyone from the national trust all the way down to the listed building owner who who has a little medieval cottage or something like that and we we react to whatever our clients need basically okay sounds like rewarding work yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of the uh, one of the big attractions for me is that I've been really, really interested in history and archaeology since about the age of four or five. I was constantly making my parents take me to castles, to country houses, to monasteries, and I suppose I've turned my childhood hobby into a career. So it's 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 a way of ensuring that I'm kept entertained and paid. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. What History Rage is all about, of course, you think there, there is your lifelong love. And what we're here to talk about today is your lifelong hate. That thing <laughs> yeah. which should be thrown into into a well and sealed up, bricked up and forgotten. I'm so, all for it. Let's do it. So, James, will you please tell our listeners with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, <laughs> what is the one thing you just wish people would get the hell over? I wish that tour guides, television presenters, people who write guidebooks, people who tweet, write blogs, I wish they would all just stop and think for a moment about the story of spiral staircases in castles all turning clockwise, apparently to advantage right-handed defenders and to disadvantage right-handed attackers trying to run up those staircases. Kyle? He's he's said it. He's yes. gone and said it. Thank, Thank God. God somebody comes on here to say this. So so as in, in as a particular myth, I've I've been seeing this ever since I started visiting castles. I've been seeing it ever since social media became a thing. But it, it does actually predate social media and me by quite a long way, I'm led to believe. So starting off before we get into kind of ripping this myth apart. Can you give us any idea of, of the history of this myth, where it starts, how long it's been going? So when I first started to look into this particular myth, I got it in my head that the answer to this was probably going to be an 18th century antiquarian or more likely a Victorian military historian. I, I figured it was going to be somewhere in that bracket. You can blame Victorians for a lot of things in history, really. You're absolutely spot on with that one. So I was nearly correct. It certainly came out of the Victorian world, but only just. The very earliest citation of this particular story comes from 1902. And it comes from a fella called Sir Theodore Andrea Cook. And he included this myth in an essay that he wrote called The Shell of Leonardo, which was published in 1902. And then he subsequently published that article as a chapter in his book. And his book was called Spirals in Nature and Art. Now, prior to yeah. this uh, exposition of the myth, I can find no other 
reference to it whatsoever anywhere in any form of literature. So if it did exist, it made no impact whatsoever. It, it wasn't yeah. written down. Now, I'm not saying that just because it's written down, it could not have been an oral tradition before, but it does not seem to have existed in any context whatsoever. And it, and it made no impact because when you start to see the myth being repeated, it's always after this 1902 date. Yeah. And in the early literature, you are seeing authors who have clearly read Theodore Andrea Cook because they directly cite him. Now, once you get up to the, the period just before the Second World War, they stop citing him because it's quite an old book by that point, And it's simply yeah. being regurgitated. That is the earliest iteration of the myth. So I suppose we want to ask the question, well, where did this come from? Did this guy, Theodore Andrew yeah. Cook, literally pluck it out of the air? And the answer is no. He didn't just happen upon it one day. The more you look at Cook's life and works and interests, the more you realise that he is primed to come up with this story. There's literally only this man that could invent it. And the reasons for this are threefold. Firstly, Cook was writing a book about spirals. He was an art critic by trade. And he's writing this book about all the different types of spirals that you can find, as he says, in nature and in art, i.e. man-made stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's already got spirals on the brain. So one of the sections is going to have to be on spiral staircases. Then the more you read, not just that book, but more of Cook's other wider writings, you realise that this is a man who's fundamentally obsessed with what hand people use. Are they left-handed or right-handed? And it's a real obsession of his. And he digresses in quite a bit of his writing to give lists of people who were left-handed because he's got it in his head that left-handed people excel at whatever they take on in life. And so he cites people like Leonardo da Vinci as being a potential left-hander, Hans Holbein, uh, the Benjamite slingshotters of the Bible, who were apparently all whiz kids with their slingshots and, and, and all left-handed. And then he, he, he breaks off to talk about these two French uh, or, or Franco-German fencers who were quite popular at the turn of the century. And Mariniak uh, was one of them. And I can't quite remember the name of the other one now because it's not written down in front of me and it's quite a complicated name. But he's obsessed with these Franco-German fencers who are left-handed. And you're like, well, why is he so obsessed with them? Then the third thing um, drops into view. You find out that Cook is an inveterate fencer. He is so obsessed with the sport. Of, mm -hmm. of, of, of fighting with a foil. He founded Oxford University's fencing club. He was the fencing columnist for the Telegraph. He was on the Amateur Fencing Association Committee, and he also picked fencers for the Olympic British fencing team of 1905. Right. So you suddenly put all of these things together He's completely obsessed with spirals. He's completely obsessed with what hand people use. And he's specifically obsessed with what hand people use because he's interested in what hand they use to fence with as well because he's such a fencing nut. Yeah, it, it, it all comes together where, when you look at it like that. It all you know, slots into place. So there isn't, there isn't a regurgitation of this myth beforehand because I think it doesn't exist uh, until 1902. And what happens is, is that, 
Cook puts out his article and his book a year later, and there's a bit of a lull until an American journalist called Guy Cadogan Rothery repeats the myth in a book that he's writing on staircases and garden steps, and that comes out in 1910. And he specifically mm-hmm. cites Cook in this, so we know that that's where he's got his information from. Then there's a bit more of a lull until the very end of the 1930s when two things happen. Firstly, there's a guy called Sidney Toy, who's a, a castle specialist, but a very popular castle specialist. And he's writing for a mass audience. And he's one of the kind of the early mass writers on castles. There aren't that many people before him that write with the public, the general public in mind. And Toy includes the myth in his first big seller. Um, And that's in the sort of the 1938, 1939 period. And that goes on to sell thousands and thousands of copies. And it's reprinted in the 50s after the war. But at more or less the same time that Toy writes his book and includes the myth there, we also get what has probably popularised it more than anything else. And it's, to many people's mind, the proof of the reality of fighting on staircases. Because in 1938, Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn ran all the way up and down a spiral staircase uh, on a film set purporting to be Nottingham Castle during the film The Adventures of Robin Hood. And it's such a famous sword fight. And it came out at around the same time that Sidney Toy's writing about fighting on spiral staircases and staircases being um, designed to facilitate uh, an advantage for the defender that I think people just ran with it. And when you come into that post-war period, literally all popular writers are repeating it. So once you get into the 50s, 60s and 70s, if you're writing a a mass produced book for the general public and non-specialist audience, that myth is in there. And I suppose by the time that you if you come into that as a complete newcomer, then that's going to be established fact. It sounds entirely plausible. I think probably when I first heard it, I probably believed it. And it wasn't really until I started looking into castles in a real deep way that you do. Also, the fact that it's repeated by what might be called figures in authority, that really helps the myth along. And the fact that it is picked up by tour guides, it is repeated in television programmes, it is there in the popular literature by authors that really should know better, that it helps it along. But the thing that I think really shoves the myth into believability for most people Mm. is that generally the first time they hear it, it's being repeated to them by a close family member. So when I'm surveying castle sites and I'm in the chamber next to the staircase or I'm working on the staircase itself, I'm constantly aware of other visitors to the sites. And you can hear what they're talking about. And if I'm in a castle near a staircase for a whole day, I will hear the spiral staircase myth repeated dozens and dozens of times. Now, it is usually a grandfather or a father repeating it to a little boy, you know, to a six, seven year old. And you can't call them out then, can you? You can't call them out. No, no, you never get you're never going to win that argument at all. Also, it does seem to be a bit of a boy's story as well, because it's a bit militaristic and a bit adventurous. And, you know, it's that kind of sort of, I suppose, old school boy's own adventure type stuff. Um, I've to date never heard 
a mother or a grandmother repeating it to a little girl to, to date. This is only anecdotal, of course, but I've yeah. always heard it as, as an elder male repeating it to a very young boy. And as you go through life, well, your dad's told you that. You don't want to yeah. disbelieve what your dad said. You love him. Uh, you know, he's the source of everything you know. And as a result, when the myth gets challenged at a later period in time, there is a certain type of person that reacts badly and really, 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 really hates it and pushes back and gets quite defensive about it. And I absolutely think that's because they don't want something that they've held on to for their whole life because the dad or the grandfather told them that yeah. to, to, to be in some way corrupted. And it's that idea of the innocence of youth comes to play here. Okay, well, let's, yeah. let's take a bit of that innocence of youth and uh, put it firmly in its place then. Yeah. So can you give us any examples of where this myth just completely collapses? So aside from the fact that we can identify with some degree of confidence exactly who and when invented the myth, yeah, I think we can uh, pull it apart. So the story goes that all castle staircases turn clockwise with the intention of them being built with the defenders who are apparently fighting downhill, so to speak, putting them in the advantage over the uh, the right-handed attackers running up the newel and finding that their right hand is being impeded by the central post, what's called the newel post, running up the middle of the, of the mm -hmm. staircase. That's the idea. However, there is a big problem here because 30% of spiral staircases turn anti-clockwise in castles so it's not and now that's a spanner in the works right? yeah yeah it's <laughs> quite a lot of staircases <laughs> yeah it's pretty much one third of them it's what you would call a significant minority it's not just one or two there is a very very large number of these things if i'm thinking statistically here and sorry for, for butting in there if we're talking one in three spiral staircases are anti-clockwise now, if we go back to castles being not the picturesque ruin that I go and visit with English heritage men, but something that covers an area of four square miles, such as Pontefract Castle, which is just down the road, mm -hmm. there's going to be more than three spiral staircases in there, aren't there? And statistically, this thing that is supposedly built to disadvantage an attacker has been factored in there already. So you've you've got this this preservation issue because obviously we only have a certain number of castles surviving or only bits of some castles surviving pontefract of course is a great example there mm. because it's absolutely trashed at the end of the british civil wars and as a result we've got limited survival but we've got enough castles and enough spiral staircases to be able to say something meaningful about what we do have and when you say statistically, there are some people who will then counter the argument and say, ah, but anti-clockwise spiral staircases become more common over time. So you've got them in the 14th and 15th century in greater abundance than you have in the 11th or 12th century. And then they'll say, because over time, castles become less defensive, don't they? And that is, broadly speaking, true. There are a lot more in the later medieval period. Mm -hmm. But also, we have a lot more medieval castles surviving from that period. So again, you have got this yeah. preservation issue, purely because the, the data is skewed, because those are often sites which have been less susceptible to being pulled apart. They're, they're actually designed 
for much more comfortable residents. So a lot of them actually survive as residences. And also a lot of the early castles that we have were built of earth and timber. So we don't really have as many stone examples. Then something else comes into play and you say, all right, then, well, let's look at what we do have from the 11th and 12th century. Let's say take the Norman conquest, a period of, of, of apparent militarization, uh, of, of conquest, of putting down of the Saxons. Surely, if a spiral staircase is intended as a defensible feature, then during this conquest period, we should find no anti-clockwise staircases at all because it's just too dangerous. And then you look at the castles where you do have them. Well, the I suppose you could call it the granddaddy of them all, the most famous castle in mm. the world, the White Tower at the Tower of London, yep. has an anti-clockwise newel in there. Well, that doesn't make much sense, does it? Norwich Castle, built at exactly the same time for apparently the same purpose in an urban location, in fact, in, in England's second largest city of the medieval period we find there that the great tower there it has two surviving anti-clockwise newels but we know that there was a third in there as well so all mm. of a sudden you've got a large number of anti-clockwise newels in these great towers that's the norman conquest let's look at other periods of military activity where it might be non-advisable to build uh, an anti-clockwise newel take the anarchy of stephen for example the civil war that kicks off for the yeah. best part of 20 years in the mid-12th century. Well, Newark Castle, just down the way from me here in Nottinghamshire, is going up in that period of time. Its principal staircase in the main gatehouse uh, of the castle is anti-clockwise. That doesn't make much sense. More or less contemporary with this castle, uh, and built towards the Scottish borderlands in North Yorkshire, is Helmsley Castle. Now, here, yep. you really don't want an anti-clockwise uh, stair. It's built in a time of war and in a place of constant war. And yet its Sallyport gate is accessed from an anti-clockwise newel. And you can move on and move on and move on through time. The, the Welsh castles of Edward I, almost all of them, which are built at that period of conquest where he's trying to pin down the Welsh to the Snowdonian Massif, most of those castles, Conwy, Harlech, Beaumaris, have got anti-clockwise newels. So, so, yeah, I think if we look at the if we look at the Ring of Iron castles in Wales, that these are things that are actually built with being constantly attacked and sieged in mind. You know, I'm thinking they could be resupplied from the sea and things like that. You know, there's lots of reasons for building the Ring of Iron. It military conquest and defensibility and pinning down the Welsh is definitely part of it, but also overawing the Welsh psychologically is there. They're co-opting mythology in the construction of these buildings to sort of show that Edward is the new Roman Empire. They're also involved in lavish displays of kingly behaviour. So the inner court of Conwy is a royal palace Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on with these castles. They're quite complex structures, but we must acknowledge the fact that they are in a war zone and that there are certainly extremely uh, functional 
defensive aspects to them. And Conway is the classic example of that with its multiple Barbican's drawbridges, flanking towers, arrow loops, uh, multiple portcullises, multiple gatehouses to get into that courtyard. So, yeah, there is a, a strong element of fortification to those sites. So really, if you wanted to maximise the defensibility, although there are other things going on with castles, it's not just defensive fortification. But if you yeah. want to maximise that, why would you put something which is apparently a weak point in your castle, namely an anti-clockwise newel? Well, the only answer that I can come to here is that actually, when you look at it, a spiral staircase is not a fundamental part of a castle's defensibility, that there's something else going on there. The direction of the spiral doesn't matter. The direction of the spiral um, will matter to an extent, but it won't matter according to the defensive functioning of, yes. of the building. There are reasons for why spiral staircases turn one way or the other, but it's got nothing to do yeah. with the fortification aspects of the castle. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so I've always held this theory that if you're fighting in the castle, then you've lost. the The end game is is a just a simple matter of time. So, if the spiral staircase is not built with defense in mind, what parts of a castle's architecture are built with a military function in mind, and what what bits aren't? And what, if any, is the significance of the direction of a staircase? The first comment I'd really want to make about defensibility of castles is that sieges are incredibly rare in the medieval period. I cannot stress this highly enough. They are so unbelievably rare that the vast majority of castles are never besieged at all in any context whatsoever. I live in Nottinghamshire, and and, and the, the, the case is true here. We have, across the whole sort of 500 or so years of the medieval period, we have about... 30 to 35 castles or structures that can be classed as a castle mm -hmm. built in the county, of which during the medieval period, only two are besieged. And that's Nottingham and Newark. Now, they happen to be the biggest, most prestigious, most important, significant castles in the county. But let's take Nottingham first. That's besieged for a grand total of three days in the medieval period where Richard the Lionheart comes back from Crusades and he's trying to oust the followers of Prince John. And there's a bit of a desultory action in the Outer Bailey. 
Richard's troops get in, they hang everybody that they find, and they say, you're next to the rest of the garrison. Now, the reason that the garrison have, have let themselves be besieged is because they don't believe that Richard's who he says he is. Once it becomes apparent that he very much is the king and he's laying waste to all in his, uh, in his path, then they just capitulate and give in. But that siege lasts for three days. Nottingham Castle is built in the late 1060s and it survives as a castle until 1651. Even in the British civil wars, it's never laid siege to. It's just a few, again, desultory raids. So three days is not really a glorious yeah. history of besiegement, is it? The other castle, Newark, is besieged for a grand total of seven days. And, it, and this really is a, a bit of a piss-poor affair, to be honest with you. They fire a single trebuchet at the castle as a kind of a, a signal that the siege has begun. Then they just sort of sit waiting. And eventually, this is in 1218... William Marshall bribes the garrison out with a hundred quid. So, you know, this is not one of the great stories from English history. But if you look at the county I live in, it's got 30, 35 structures, which can be called castles, and a total siege number of days of just 10 throughout the entire 500 years of the medieval period. It's not a great record, is it? The point being is that sieges are abundantly rare. So, so, so rare. And this then beggars the question, which you asked directly, of how yeah. defensive are castles and what's the intent of them? Well, there, we cannot get round the fact that there are defensive aspects to a lot of castles. We can go to them, we can look at fields of fire, we can look at how they've modelled the landscape, we can look at the uh, locations of particular features such as towers we can see in the later period things like machicolations for murder holes and the like for dropping things on your enemies and we can say you know there's some reasonable element of functional militarism about some of these castles but then also yeah. we can look at other castles and say well they kind of look like they might be militaristic but they don't really work so take Tattershall, the subject of my phd you look at it there and it kind of it's got crenellations at the top it's got machicolations but it it doesn't really work it's got wooden floors uh, it's got too many doors going into it a, a total of 5 into the into the great tower mm-hmm. um the well is entirely separate to the upper chambers uh, its windows are too big the machicolations drop onto the great hall roof it's it's not it, you know the parapet's too low it doesn't work but it, it's built at a very late period in time more as a, a lavish country house but the question has to be asked is when they're building castles in the 14th and 15th century and they're maybe not top grade military structures what are these buildings used for well they are built for ceremonial pageantry lavish displays of prestige they're theatrical yeah. backdrops to elite living the thing is though that they've always done that and so even in the anglo-norman period the late saxon into the period of, of the conquest and onwards Castle still did that even then. It's just we've got slightly less of them standing. A lot of them are earth and timber and quite difficult to uh, interpret. Yeah. But they're also using them for these incredible displays of pageantry, even back then as well. So it's not that we have what you might call a decline of the castle. What you've actually got is that castles have always done this. It's just that they look a bit different over time. And yes, there is 
more light or heavy touch on militaristic features. But you can go and find some quite early castles which aren't especially well defended as well. So there's always been complexity to castle studies. It's just that it was kind of reduced by primarily 20th century, mid 20th century historians who were just a little bit over-enthused by the First and Second World Wars and got very much blinkered at looking at these things as military structures. Yeah. When actually they're lavish residences. So that's one answer to this idea of the defensibility of castles. And then you said, what's the significance of the direction of a staircase? If there is one. If there is one. And this is probably the most difficult thing to get at when you when you address this particular story, because if you can convince people that they're actually not military, but then somebody will always pop up and I think quite rightly say, well, why did they build them in one direction or another? And this is where we have to nuance the argument by saying, well, we don't have any manuals for castle building that survived from the medieval period. If ev- anyone ever existed, anyone ever wrote one, we don't have it surviving and i don't think that they were writing these things in the way that maybe the romans were writing about their military mm. structures um or that in the 17th century they were writing about them i don't think that they actually exist as, as a manual so what we have to do is we have to look at this archaeologically one third of castle staircases turn the other way why might that be the case well i think it's all going to be site specific And if we take Newark again as an example, which is just on the banks of the River Trent at the crossing of the Fossway and the Great North Road, it's a really important town in the medieval period. And we have this great castle that's built in the 1130s for the Bishop of Lincoln there. And its gatehouse has this this lobe, this this turret, which stands out from the rest of the the gatehouse, which contains this anti-clockwise newel. And you look at that, And then you try and imagine what it would be like to actually put the staircase going in in the opposite direction. And you realise that you would actually have to access that staircase at a 90 degree angle. And that actually fitting a clockwise newel into that space would actually double the size of the turret. And the whole reason for building a spiral staircase is because they are space-saving devices. If you've ever been to a a castle with straight staircases in the Great Tower, it's really weird. So if you go to Richmond Castle in North York, Mm -hmm. all of the the castle staircases there, bar one, are built within the thicknesses of the walls. And they're huge. They take up so much space. And of course, they reduce the defensibility of the site because it thins the walls because you've essentially got a cavity wall uh, with a staircase in it. So they take up huge amounts of space and they actually corrupt the defensibility of the site. So here at Newark, we've actually got a spiral staircase which is going anti-clockwise because it saves space. And by saving space, it also saves finance as well. Do you really want to build a turret that's twice as big? And this is a big turret anyway, which is going to involve much more in the way of materials and labour, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes... It's a very practical decision, and it's because of the the specifics of the design of the castle and the building that it's in and, and, and the rooms that it's serving above. Then we kind of get the suspicion that in some sites they do turn them clockwise, these 70% of sites, because of a very practical reason. 
So for anyone ascending the staircase, and most people going up and down the staircases are not going to be the elite lords at all. They're going to be the ordinary household retinue, which is going to include a lot of servants who are literally yeah. servicing the elites in the, in the upper chambers of these towers. So you imagine walking up a spiral staircase with a bucket of water in one hand. 90% of people are right-handed. You want to be walking on the bit of the staircase which is widest, i.e. closest to the outer wall, and you want your hand carrying your pail of water closest to the newel so you've got space. And then if there's a rope or a, or a handrail going up there, you can hold it in the left hand. Now, obviously, when yeah. you're coming back downstairs you've got the converse problem and it might be problematic. Well, how do I actually do this? Cause I'm, I'm coming the other way, but of course the pail of water might be empty at that point. So there might be a yeah. practical purpose for it. Also in terms of practicality, there is a particular type of building which goes up from the middle years of the 13th century. And it's one of these massive gatehouses, which is called a Tunbridge style gatehouse. And it has big drum towers at the front gate portal between and then stacked chambers over the top and those chambers are usually given over to the most lavish well-appointed um, suites of accommodation and those chambers are accessed usually in this type of gatehouse from the, from the uh, uh, the late 13th century running all the way through into the 15th and 16th centuries by twin turrets at the back and those turrets will almost always have one anti-clockwise a one clockwise newel. Kirby Muxlow in Leicestershire is a good example yeah. of this. And I don't think we can possibly get away from the idea that this might be a one-way system. Yeah. So you go up the clockwise and down the anti-clockwise, and we can certainly see this in monastic cathedral towers as well, where you've got really, really narrow uh, spiral stairs, no room for passing. So if you want to go up, you've got to keep going up. If you meet someone halfway, you're in trouble because you can't get past each other because some of these are so narrow. And we might have a situation like this in these really narrow 13th and 14th century stair turrets where you've actually got, you go yeah. up one way and down the other. Those are the three rationales that I can come to to explain why you might have spirals going in one direction or the other. And it's to save space and labour and materials in one case it's possibly to advantage the carrying of goods by servants up a clockwise mule, and it might be an up and down system where you've got paired mules. So castles and fortifications are built to control and dominate a region and a landscape. How exactly does a castle do this? So I know I talked a little bit about this previously when we were talking about how castles kind of work and the way that they are used as these elaborate stage sets for this this tremendous elite ceremonial pageantry mm -hmm. and that is actually part of how castles actually work because what aristocrats are doing is broadcasting their power using these castles so they are using them for all sorts of purposes they are using them for staging great feasts to which their retainers are all invited. And that's a big way of social bonding, the feasting, the banquet. Well, the banquet's slightly more private and reserved for the, the very top guests. But the feasts, of course, are being serviced by 
the produce of hunts, for example. And we can see mm. aristocrats who have great big deer parks immediately outside their castle walls. And going out to hunt is an elite activity in itself. It's another form of social bonding. It's martial training, so riding at speed, firing or shooting bows and arrows, throwing spears, killing a stag with a sword. We know Edward I did that. It's documented. All of these things are partly practical, the catching of an animal, the eating at a table, the consumption, that's, you know, has a practical function. But it's also there to bring people together and bond them socially, but also to demonstrate to the general populace, look, we are so powerful, we can build this structure. Look at how lavish it is. Look at all of our real powerful mates coming to visit. Look at us going off to hunt in the deer park. By the way, did you see that we've taken that out of common agriculture? We are we are transforming the landscape. We can mm. we can create this this amazing romantic landscape in a way that would be anathema to the practical farmer. This is kind of how castles work. They they overawe through magnificence. And yes, there is a defensive militaristic aspect bound up with that. Even at the later period in time, we see houses being built which have elements of fortification they might have gun loops for example they might yeah. have corner towers but by that point it, it, it and, and really to the early period as well it's just an added element of security to what is a treasure house and of course you know we can't get away from the fact that things like the the iron ring in wales did have this very very strong defensive aspect but there's so much more going on and it's it's the what's going yeah. on in those castles, but also around them in the wider landscape that really determines how they work. Because you simply cannot stand up to a status quo, which is so very, very powerful. And we have to remember that apart from various internal rebellions and family squabbles, that the post-Norman conquest rulership and, and system of, of government of this country is to all intents and purposes uninterrupted to this day. Yes, we might have had the British Civil Wars, which saw Charles I removed for a brief period of time, but his son comes back. A lot of the old yeah. aristocrats remain. We are basically looking at many families who can follow their ancestry back to the Norman Conquest. So there has been a success and castle building has been part of that success. Would it be fair to theorise, being not the expert here, but when we talk about like like the image of a castle and you say it's it's lavish, it's it's exuding power, and you talk quite rightly about you know, we can take all this from agricultural land and just deal with it. We're not we're not building a castle really to stand up against the French here or to stand up against you know rival armies. But if you're in a position, let's take Wales as a classic example where it's just rife with various rebellions and uprisings and so forth having that enormous great stone structure there with all its defensive capabilities is a lot like saying well go on then just try it and quite often the welsh do just try it and they do succeed right. <laughs> for example that the case that i always give is conwy vast mm -hmm. as its defenses are it did fall to the welsh and it fell to the welsh when the castle garrison went to chapel or church in the town and basically left the front gate open. <laughs> 
so you can be as defensive as you want. But if you're garrison are idiots, the Welsh are going to get in there. And they did. So many of these castles are taken. And in fact, quite a lot of them, the Welsh try and, and, and push back the English while the construction of the castles is actually still going on before they've even been completed. So the Welsh, for quite a long period of time, do come and have a go because they are hard enough, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you can see that rolling right the way into the uh, into the 15th century with the rebellion of Oenglandua, for example, which involved yeah. the taking of several English castles. So they might look the part, but a lot of these castles really don't stand up when it comes to serious confrontation. And one of the things is there's there's usually a weak spot with these castles. The weak spot can be bribing the garrison out, as we saw yeah. at, at Newark in the 12th century. It could be um, if we pop over to the English-controlled Norman lands and look in the early 13th century at the taking of Chateau Gaillard by the French. They took the middle bailey there by getting one of their soldiers to shimmy up one of the latrine shafts and open the gate. And then... A, a, a few days later, the castle falls as a result of that. There's always going to be a weak spot, and very, very few castles do hold out successfully for long periods of time. The only examples that I can really think of protracted sieges is the Siege of Rochester in 1215, where King John is determined to bring down the rebellious barons, and they do hold out because they know that they are dead meat if he gets in. And the same thing happens in 1265, where there's a, a very long siege at Kenilworth. Uh, and again, they know that once Henry III and his murderous son, who will go on to become Edward I, if their troops get into Kenilworth, that they're all dead meat as well. So you do occasionally get these protracted sieges. But it has to be said, coming back to spiral staircases, if you end up in a situation where you're besieged and the opposing army have bashed through the gates or blown a hole in the wall or whatever, and they're in the bailey spilling around. If you're fighting on the staircases, the game is up. Yeah. You are not going to win. You are not going to survive. There is no way out of that. If you're running up yeah. and down staircases like Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone, it is over. There's just no way of winning it. So why would you consider building a staircase in a defensive manner when it's just there's, there's no hope for you there really isn't any documentary evidence for a single sword fight on a single staircase in the entirety of the medieval period either if we can sort of say well there was this siege and look what happened here we do yeah. get it like at the siege of rochester where we know that they were shutting down the great tower and and and, and they were in only a part of it we do know that there was some activity there but in the end they only give up that tower when they've got assurances that they'll be let out and let left to live and they're not fighting up the staircases so you know it, it's over at that point and there are some sort of a, assessments of what happens with spiral staircases as well because there's been a, a couple of really good pieces of writing by other specialists mm. uh, in particular uh, charles Ryder, who did his phd on spiral staircases uh, and Neil Guy, who wrote a very influential article uh, for the Castle Studies Group journal. And Charles in particular points out that you only really get spiral staircases in elite buildings. So if you go out into, into, the, into the wider castle, into the outer bailey or the outer ward, uh, the lower status areas of castles, you, you really don't see spiral staircases there at all. You only get them in the poshest bits, usually the great towers 
or the inner courtyards, yeah. that kind of thing. And Charles even went on to look at other classes of buildings and said, well, you don't get them in town walls either. And you don't get them in the militant orders either. So the Knights Templar don't really have spiral staircases. And he says that these things are one of the ultimate expressions of elite status in medieval society. To have a spiral staircase marks you out as being really, really posh. So you only have them in the poshest bits of your houses and castles. And they become kind of a the conduit from, if you look at a castle tower, in the vast majority of cases, 99.9% of castles, as you go from the basement up to the top of the castle, the rooms get more magnificent and lavish. Yeah. And if you're using a spiral staircase as a conduit between those spaces, it's intended to be part of this semi-public consumption of this expression of majesty and grandeur. And you can certainly get a sense of this at places like Tattershall, for example, where the staircase is unnecessarily wide. And it's therefore also demonstrating the, 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 the rich nature of Ralph Lord Cromwell, who's the patron, he's the Lord Treasurer of England. So the bigger your spiral staircase, the bigger your tower, the more lavish your rooms within, the more powerful you are in society. It's basically medieval willy-waving. Yeah, it's it's it, it's. Uh, I know medieval period particularly has a fashion of wear your wealth, but also build it, show it off. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And they do it in all, in, in all sorts of really, really weird ways. This idea of conspicuous consumption can be sensed. I'm, I'm sorry, I keep using this as an example, but it's such a good example that the gatehouse range at Newark, not only does it have these really lavish chambers, which are accessed by this really big, and it's a very big anti-clockwise newel, but the adjacent latrine block, it actually has latrine chutes which stop well high of the river. They could have brought them down to river level and they would have been washed out by the river uh, as they do later on in the 14th century. But in the 12th century, when this castle's being built for Alexander the Magnificent, the Bishop of uh, Lincoln, what he seems to order is that the latrine chutes stop high of the river so that the shit stains will actually be there on the wall and they'll be visible right next to this gatehouse. So you've actually got shit being used as uh, a status symbol because it shows you the conspicuous consumption in the great hall at high table. Look at how much we've been eating. Look at all the poo running down our walls. It sounds really alien to us in this modern world, but they're co-opting the use of shit stains on the walls alongside with the really, really posh gatehouse with its massive spiral staircase. Literally everything about these buildings is to show off. Okay, so to just start to wrap things up here, what are some of the other great building myths that really need tearing down? Well, if we stick with a kind of militaristic theme, maybe, um, mm-hmm. there's the story that there are certain grooves which are, can be found on the walls of English parish churches, mm-hmm. usually around the area of the porch, which are said to have been put there by archers who are sharpening their arrows before they go and train at the village butts and then go off to fight in the Hundred Years' War. And usually the tour guide or the parish guide or or the church warden will sort of say, ah, yes, because Edward III ordered that all men in England should practice archery so that they were battle ready. And that's one that's always bothered me as well. These militaristic uh, myths really 
bug me, I have to say. Uh, and when you start digging down into that one, again, it evaporates as well, just very quickly. Ultimately, there was no reason for sharpening arrows at the butts because they used blunt arrows. So that just goes completely <laughs> out of the way. I've spoken to blacksmiths about this, and they've said that the, the grooves that are left would not be the grooves as a result of competent sharpening, that they would actually blunt an instrument rather than actually sharpen them. Most of the stones are actually too soft and really wouldn't work as sharpening stones. And in reality, what we're looking at here is, is, a, is an almost completely forgotten medieval practice of scraping holy buildings and holy structures to take the stone powder home, mix it up often with holy water and ingest it as a potion for fevers. And this is actually documented in the medieval period as well. It's quite a lot of yeah. references to it. And yet it's another story which is repeated by so many people in so many different contexts for so many different buildings and is widely believed. Well, that, that, was, that was news to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm into yeah. medieval. Okay, well, thank you very much for for that, James. Uh, that was that was an epic rage, and I'm hoping this has altered the output of Castle Guided Tours forever. We can but hope. Uh, thank you very much for giving me so, the platform to actually have a bit of a rant. I didn't swear too much either, so um, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry for not swearing. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to know more about James's work, then you can read his excellent medieval myth-busting blog at triskelheritage.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at jpwarchaeology. And uh, I'm sure you'll be able to follow much more medieval outrage if you tag on to there and we will put links to those in the show notes as well but once again james thank you very much for bringing 500 years worth of anger to a 45 minute podcast you are very very welcome thanks for having me ladies and gentlemen i hope you've enjoyed this episode and you can follow us on twitter at history rage or individually i am at paul Bavel, and i'm at kyle g history and if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. Now, that brings Series 3 to a close, so we're going to take a week off. But until the next two weeks, thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.